0: We return to our study of this glorious presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. What a thrill and privilege that is for us. It is said that you find out what someone is really like when they are under pressure. In other words, challenges, difficulties reveal who we are and where we are in life. To say it differently, circumstances do not dictate your character, they reveal it and become then the opportunity to refine it. Well, that is true of each of us here this morning. It's true of the trials and challenges that we go through, but it is not true of Jesus when he was facing challenges and under pressure. It's not true because... His character did not need any refining. He was sinless. And that reality was revealed throughout his life, throughout his ministry, including the times he faced difficulties or when the pressure was on. Now, the most vivid example is how he endured all the cruelty and injustice that went along with his arrest the night before he was crucified, and then on into the illegal trials he had to go through and hearings, and of course, especially in his crucifixion. Throughout that entire drama, Jesus still showed himself to be the perfect God-man in every way, and as well, he still showed himself to be the perfect caring shepherd that he was. Now, we began our study of the drama related to the end of Jesus' earthly life in our last study in the Gospel of John. That was a couple of weeks ago. So a couple of Sundays ago, we looked at John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. That is the account on the night before his crucifixion, the account of Jesus' betrayal by Judas and then Jesus' arrest in the garden of Gethsemane. We return to our study then of that drama this morning, picking up with verse 12 of John chapter 18. From this point on, we find things moving quickly toward the crucifixion. Now, all along the way, we've seen this in John, that the Jewish religious leaders were frustrated about Jesus. They wanted Jesus to be done away with, but his execution... Now that it's, it looks like it's going to happen, it's going to happen, have to happen quickly before the Passover began on Friday evening and before the, the week-long feast of unleavened bread that follows Passover. It needed to happen quickly because in Leviticus 23, we find that proceed, proceedings like a religious trial and certainly an execution were banned from happening on feast days. So, once that combined Jewish and Roman force found Jesus that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, and once they had taken Him into custody, they did move quickly to get Jesus tried and accused on trumped-up charges. And that's what we find in our passage today, the Lord in the custody of His enemies on trial for His life. Difficult circumstances. But even though these were even degrading circumstances, we still find Jesus displaying dignity. We find him displaying what we've seen all along the way, and that is complete control of the situation. Now, just an introductory word about John's account of Jesus' arrest and the subsequent trials. John wrote about Jesus' trials, as we'll see, but he wove into it the account of something tragic related to Peter, and that was Peter's denials of the Lord. So the initial hearings involving Jesus and Peter's denials were scenes that actually took place at the same time simultaneously, so keep that thought in mind. However, we are actually going to separate the two scenes out for our purposes today and next Sunday. So, today we're going to look at the two sections in chapter 18 that talk about Jesus' initial trials. And then next Sunday we will look at the sections that present Peter's denials. Now, as expected, you can conjure this up on your, in your own minds as I laid that out for you these two scenes. Jesus and Peter present quite a contrast. On the one hand, we find the glory of the Lord and the faithfulness of Jesus. And on the other hand, we find the opposite with Peter. We find faithlessness and we even find cowardice. So today, John chapter 18, verses 12 through 14, and then we're going to skip down to verses 19 24, 22, 23, 24. Now, this scene begins in verse 12 with John just setting the stage for the first hearing. Here's what it says, verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Now, that's what we've already seen in verses 1 through 11, that the arresting party came to the Garden of Gethsemane looking for Jesus, and that, that host of men consisted of both Jews and Romans. And here, when John says the Jews, he means something specific. It's a reference to the Jewish religious authorities, and the Jewish officers are mentioned. These would have been members of what we would call the temple police force. But notice that John chose to list the Romans first here. Well, that's likely because they were the primary ones sort of uh, springing into action at the end of, of verses 1 through 11. Why? Because we saw this last week back in verse 10 that Peter took out his dagger and he attacked a man standing near him, a man named Malchus, and he cut off that man's ear. Well, that obviously would have caused the soldiers there to act quickly, and so John goes ahead and lists them first. But even so, that doesn't change a fact, and that is that the Jewish officials were actually the primary arresting officers. And that's clear from what we'll see today, the fact that Jesus was brought not to a Roman court, he was brought to Annas, and then to a man named Caiaphas who were both Jewish authorities. The Roman soldiers were there to make sure that Jesus got to those hearings. They were there to make sure that no mob violence occurred that might uh, help Jesus escape. Then once they fulfilled their responsibility, they would have then returned back to their barracks at a place called the Fortress of, of Antonio. In any case, notice it says Jesus was bound. That's expected. That would have been the customary way of handling someone who had been arrested. Why? So he wouldn't escape. So they took Jesus, bound, to a place to be interrogated. And keep in mind what I've already told you, that Peter is following them there, but he didn't go into that interrogation room. He stayed outside in the courts warming himself at a fire. Well, as we will see, Jesus was interrogated by more than one man. And the first one is given to us in verse 13, a man named Annas. Verse 13, they led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, the highest Jewish court for any kind of trial like this was a group called the Sanhedrin, and that court was presided over by the one who was the official high priest. Annas had once been in that position, the official high priest. Just so you'll know, Annas was a very proud man. He was a very ambitious, money-focused man. He was a greedy man. He had a special hatred for Jesus, likely because, as we know, Jesus had twice... Disrupted the business that was going on in the temple courts by cleansing the temple. John chapter 2, Matthew chapter 21. So, Annas doesn't care for Jesus at all. Now, he had been appointed to that position of high priest by the Romans back in in the year AD 6, around there, AD 6 but he had been removed from that office by the predecessor to Pilate, and that happened around year 15, A.D. 15. The point being, by the time of this arrest, by the time of this interrogation before Annas, Annas had not been the official high priest for several years. Yet, even though he had been removed, Annas had continued to wield considerable influence. He still had power. In the minds of the people, at least. And that was true, first of all, because his removal from office was something that agitated many of the Jews because the law of Moses dictated that the appointment to the role of high priest was to be for life. But Annas also still had some power in the minds of people because he was the patriarch of a high priestly family. In fact, as many as five of his sons as well as his son-in-law, a man named Caiaphas, had held the office at one point or another. So my point is many still considered Annas the high priest, even though Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was the official high priest at the time of the arrest. That is why you'll find language in Scripture that makes it sound like Annas was the high priest, like in verse 19. If you look down for a moment, it calls him the high priest, but he wasn't and yet you'll also find it clearly said in Scripture that Caiaphas was the high priest. There's a tension there sometimes in Scripture. Luke preserves that tension. Back in Luke chapter 3, Luke dates the the onset of the ministry of John the Baptist, and he does that by setting the, the context of the monarchs that were in control, but he also gave us the dates of the opening of John the Baptist's ministry this way. Listen to Luke chapter 3, verse 2. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the Word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias. That was John the Baptist. It makes it sound like that Annas and Caiaphas sort of held the office simultaneously, but they did not. So even though Caiaphas held the official position of high priest, Anna still wielded a lot of influence, and sometimes he would even be called the high priest. We have something similar to that in our culture. You'll, You'll find that past presidents sometimes on an interview or something will be still referred to as Mr. President. Well, back to our text. Once Jesus had been arrested and bound, and once the Romans saw that there was no threat of mob violence or an insurrection, they'd gone back to their barracks Then the Jewish religious leaders took Jesus to a hearing before Annas. And what we're going to read here, only John records. The synoptics do not record this hearing before Annas. Now, as you read this account in John of this preliminary hearing, it is apparent that no witnesses were ever called to testify against Jesus. And that tells us that this was a very informal, unofficial trial. But this did accomplish something for Caiaphas, who was the high priest. It gave Caiaphas the time he needed to assemble some false witnesses, to gather together the full Sanhedrin for a nighttime trial where they would sentence Jesus to death. Now John adds in verse 14 a little parenthetical note to remind us that he's already mentioned to us, this man Caiaphas, back in chapter 11. Here's what he reminds us of, verse 14, now Caiaphas, it's as if John is saying, now you've seen him before, you know, in my letter. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. That's a reference back to what we studied in John chapter 11, verses 49 through 52. I'm going to read that for you because it's very interesting what we studied back there, John 11, verse 49. I'll I'll even read verse 47 to start. Therefore, the chief priest and the Pharisees convened a council, and they were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. In other words, Jesus was a continual problem for them. They wanted to get rid of him, but they kept failing to be able to do so. Verse 49 of John 11, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, verse 50, you do not take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, verse 51 goes on to say, but he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. I said it then, I'll say it now. Caiaphas spoke more profoundly, spoke better than he knew what he was saying about Jesus. Well, as I said earlier, John alternates between Jesus' hearing before Annas and Peter's denial. It's a part of that section dealing with Peter's denial that happens next, verses 15 through 16. But we're going to save that scene for next week jump down to verse 19, and now we're going to take a more focused look at this initial hearing before Annas. It's a brief account, but we do find two parts of it. So that's how we'll look at it this morning, two parts to this initial hearing. Here's part number one, the questions from Annas, the questions from Annas. So Peter's out in the courtyard area, scared stumbling spiritually. Jesus is inside, and as we're going to see, he remained faithful to his mission. Verse 19, the high priest, notice how it calls Annas the high priest there. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. That little conductor Conjunction then, you could translate it meanwhile, it's used by John to let us know that right after discussing what was going on with Peter, he jumps back to resume the account again of this hearing before Annas, who's called the high priest, even though officially he was not. And Annas followed a two-fold line of questioning here. On one hand, he questioned Jesus about his disciples, and on the other hand, he questioned Jesus about his teaching. Now, why would Annas question Jesus about his disciples? Well, Annas is fishing for something, anything to use against Jesus. We know that these religious leaders wanted to find reasons to convict Jesus. So with this category, Annas is trying to find grounds to accuse Jesus of potentially raising up a band of rebels against the Roman rule. In a word, he's looking for grounds to convict Jesus of treason. But that was not the biggest issue. It was the other category of questioning, Jesus' teaching. With that question, Annas was seeking evidence that Jesus was guilty of something far more important in their minds than treason, and that is guilty of heresy. That was the bigger issue for the Jews. It's the theological side, we could call it, and not the political side of all of this. Now, later on in John chapter 19, we'll see evidence of that on the part of the religious leaders. John chapter 19, verse 7 says, The Jews answered, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be not a traitor, he made himself out to be the Son of God. That's a theological issue. Now, it's been obvious all along the way in our study of John that the Jewish leaders did view Jesus this way. He was a false prophet, a heretic. And that was important to them because that was an offense punishable by death. You find an example of that in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 9 through 10. I'll read just an excerpt from that, Deuteronomy 13.9, but you shall surely kill him, and it's referring to someone who's found out to be a false prophet, a heretic. Verse 10, you shall stone him to death because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God. That's what was crucial. So again, Annas hoped that Jesus might incriminate himself in his answers, and even that was illegal to do. Jewish law protected the accused from being forced to testify against himself. Now, we have something like that today in our Constitution, right? You remember the Constitution, don't you? It's the Fifth Amendment. Well, in a Jewish hearing in the first century, a case had to rest on the weight of testimony, the testimony of witnesses, and not from questioning the defendant directly. Regardless, the reality of the situation is that this hearing before the Jewish authority was a complete sham anyway. Their minds about Jesus' fate had already been determined. Their purpose in even having the trials was merely, merely to make it look like the murder of Jesus was somehow legal, somehow required. So that's part one the questions from Annas. Part number two, the answer from Jesus, a very profound outline that I'm using this morning. The answer from Jesus. Now, he does not directly address the questioning from Annas, and he knows that Annas didn't really care about the answers anyway, but he merely chooses to point to the public nature of his instruction, his teaching, verses 20 and 21. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Now, first of all, notice that Jesus avoids that first category of questioning, the first line of questioning, the subject of his disciples. He's protecting his disciples still, We saw that in the garden. When the mob arrived, the the force arrived to arrest him, he made sure they articulated that they were there to arrest him and not these other men. Caring shepherd, protecting his disciples. And that's what he's doing again here, still protecting them and what he said and what he didn't say to Annas. In fact, in the original language, the pronoun I is actually emphasized. You lose that emphasis in in English, but in the Greek it's there. I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and so forth. I spoke nothing in secret. That takes attention off of the disciples and places it squarely upon Jesus himself. But when it came to his teaching, that's another matter. Jesus did not hold back, did not back down from affirming what he had taught. He pointed out that what he had said, what he had taught, could be confirmed by many people. He had spoken boldly in various public contexts. He mentions the synagogues. He mentions the temple, which would literally have been in the temple courts. And even though the religious leaders had never liked what Jesus was teaching... Not once during all his earthly ministry had any of these religious experts experts in God's law ever been able to refute Jesus' doctrine. Nevertheless, Jesus says that because of the public nature of his ministry, the Jewish authorities would have no trouble gathering many eyewitnesses to give testimony about what they'd heard Jesus teach. Now, just a note of explanation about that one statement there where he says, I spoke nothing in secret. He doesn't mean that literally. The point is not that he never spoke privately to his disciples. Obviously, he did. But the point is this his message was the same in private as it was in public. He didn't have different messages for different crowds and different contexts. He didn't maintain one message for the public and then uh, another more revealing message for just this secret group of followers. No, when he was teaching his disciples privately, which he did, he was simply explaining to them in more detail what he was saying publicly. So just to summarize, Jesus was not guilty of plotting a conspiracy, but more important than that, neither was he guilty of saying different things in different contexts to different people he was consistent he was clear in his proclamation of the truth never backing down from it he had integrity he didn't lack integrity in fact it's the jewish religious leaders who lacked integrity it's not jesus they're the ones who are going about this whole evening arresting jesus and trying to trying to accuse jesus of something in a in a covert and illegal way And don't think this either, that in Jesus' answer to Annas, that he was being uncooperative or that he was being evasive. No, he was unmasking Annas' hypocrisy, forcing, in a sense, a, a proper trial. He wanted others to be questioned. He wanted it to be clear that his teaching was actually orthodox, solid, we might say it this way, biblical. Well, at that point in the proceeding, something shocking happened, verse 22. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? This would be a Jewish official who was likely part of the temple guard that was there that night, who was part of the arrest. And the term struck literally means a sharp blow with a flat of your hand, he slapped Jesus in the face or upside the head. And that was another illegal act, illegal action. Striking a prisoner was against Jewish law. Regardless, this insult was just one of example of the kind of ill treatment that Jesus would continue to endure the rest of those early hours, even in his trial before the Sanhedrin. John doesn't record that part, but Matthew does listen to Matthew 26, verse 67, then they spat in his face and beat him with their fist and others slapped him. Now, many have noted that there seems to be a something similar between what's going on here with Jesus, his answers to the Annas and them being slapped, Maybe, maybe something similar to an incident involving the Apostle Paul. Maybe that comes to your own mind, what we see in Acts chapter 23, verses 1 to 5. There, the official high priest at that time, a man named Ananias, ordered those standing around Paul and near him to strike him on the mouth. And so they did. What did Paul do? Here's Acts 23, verses 3 to 5 just been hit in the mouth. Then Paul said to him, to the high priest, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, That's a way of saying you hypocrite. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law, order me to be struck? But the bystander said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest because it's written, and he quotes Exodus 22, it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul basically apologized. Does that compare to what was happening to Jesus? Not really. It's not quite the same situation. Paul was actually in a formal session of the Sanhedrin before the official high priest Therefore, Acts tells us that he apologized for calling the high priest a hypocrite. In contrast, you don't find Jesus calling anyone names here. He's not ungracious, but neither do you find Jesus backing down. Verse 23, just been slapped. Jesus answered him, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong, but if rightly... Why do you strike me? He's not belligerent at all. He only replied by simply reinforcing the obvious illegal nature of all that was happening there in that hearing. He knew the law, and he knew that he had said nothing to dishonor the high priest because he's not standing before the high priest. But regardless, he had not called this man any names. He was calm, he was dignified. You might think, well, how. How does this compare to what he taught earlier? He had taught earlier that we should always turn the other cheek. True. But you need to know something about that. The point of Jesus' teaching about turning the other cheek, if you examine that teaching, he never says that you should still not speak the truth. I love how D.A. Carson summarizes his observation about all that. D.A. Carson puts it this way turning the other cheek without bearing witness to the truth is not the fruit of moral resolution. It's the terrorized cowardice of the wimp. So Jesus spoke the truth, the necessary truth, and he did it calmly. And his point was that if his response to the high priest or anybody was inappropriate, then the right thing to do would be to charge him with contempt of court. But if he spoke the truth, then the assault against him was wrong. Essentially, Jesus was unmasking his opponents as those who were absolutely unable to win their case except by illegal and unjust means. Well, Annas is no dummy. He knew He didn't really have any legitimate evidence. He knew that he wasn't getting anywhere with Jesus. He knew he wasn't even the official high priest by this time. So he knew he didn't really have the legal power to actually sentence Jesus. He also knew that the actual death penalty had to be approved by the Roman court by Pilate, a Roman authority. And he also knew that before Jesus could be brought before Pilate, he did have to go before the official high priest and the the Sanhedrin. He had to go appear before Caiaphas, his own son-in-law. So here's what Annas did, verse 24. So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, the official high priest. Now this is where John's account Of that night's hearing ends. He doesn't give us any details of the trial before Caiaphas. But we do find more information in Matthew. I'll summarize it before you. In Matthew, we find that it was a full trial before the, the full Sanhedrin, we could say. Many false witnesses were brought forth, but a charge could still not be established. It wasn't going well, so the high priest, Caiaphas, directly asked Jesus this question. Matthew 26, verse 63. Jesus kept silent during the whole business. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus affirmed that he was. And when Jesus confessed that he indeed was the Son of God, They convicted him of blasphemy, and they sent him off to appear before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, whose endorsement was required to execute the sentence of death. John didn't choose to record that trial before Caiaphas, but as I said earlier, he did choose to weave back in the account of what was going on outside in the courtyard. And next time, we'll see the other side of this intertwined drama, the other side of this contrast when we look at Peter's denials. I'd like to close by commenting on the way Jesus acted that night. He is an example to us in a couple of important ways. Let me give them to you. Here's example number one, the example of courage the example of courage. Jesus made it clear to Annas that he had spoken openly to the world and that is an example for us. We claim to be Jesus' followers and that means we represent him in this world and that means we represent his truth in this world and we are to do it clearly and openly just as Jesus did. We're not to hide what we believe. We're not to misrepresent what we believe. We're not to spin it. We're not to mask our doctrine. We're not to resort to cunning and manipulative and deceitful ways. We must courageously, clearly, also graciously speak the truth, regardless of the setting and regardless of the consequences. Jesus is an example to us of that. So was the apostle Paul. Paul understood this. I'm going to read a little bit from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul is recounting his ministry among the Thessalonian believers. 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 2 through 6. I'll read some of that. He tells them, as you know, we had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Verse 4, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Paul's a good example of this, of what we need. We need courage. We need courage in speaking the truth of Scripture, and we need this more now today than ever. I don't know if you've noticed what's going on, but there's a lot of madness in this world. But all that madness in the world, all the confusion over what it means to understand one's identity, all the turmoil over personal rights, over abortion, all the perspectives that swirl around on racism, the sin of racism and hatred, all the what's said of what it means to be a, quote, authentic person. All of these are ultimately theological issues, and they're all addressed by God's Word. And that means that Scripture alone has the answers. Therefore, just as it was for Jesus, our teaching, our doctrine is what is most important, and we need to be bold to proclaim it. Let me tell you something about boldness and courage. It corresponds to something else in our lives. It's like there's a one-to-one relationship between boldness and courage and something else according to Scripture. It's the holiness of our lives. It's the level of the clear conscience that we're living with. How do I know that? Because of what Proverbs 28 verse 1 says. Proverbs 28 1, The wicked flee when no one is pursuing listen to this, but the righteous are bold as a lion. You don't really have that sense of freedom and of courage and boldness when there's sin that's being nursed and held onto and living in bondage in some area even. But the righteous are bold as a lion. What we need courage. I'm not saying we need brash courage, uncompassionate courage, and therefore this second example by Jesus is also very important. Number two, the example of composure. The example of composure. Now, Scripture tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we should look to Jesus as an example. Let me read this for you especially when being treated unfairly or unjustly. That's what Peter is dealing with there in 1 Peter chapter 2, especially being treated unjustly by authorities. Here's 1 Peter 2 verse 21. You've been called for this purpose. What? What purpose? To suffer unjustly. You've been called to the ministry. Anybody ask you, have you ever been called to the ministry? Yes. What ministry is that? To suffer unjustly since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So I can, with authority, say that we are to follow the example of Jesus, even in this. And then in verse 23, it tells you the example of Jesus. While being reviled... We just saw an example of that in this hearing before Annas. While being mistreated, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Stop there. There's the example. But what was the key that gave Christ the strength to respond that way? It's the rest of the verse where I stopped. Verse 23. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He trusted in the sovereign plan of His heavenly Father. He knew what God the Father does is right and good and just in every situation. And that His plan in the world cannot be thwarted by man's failure and man's sin. And Jesus trusted that. And this is nothing new for Jesus. We've seen that throughout His earthly life and ministry, including in the events leading up to his crucifixion. He has repeatedly displayed composure. Even when he cleansed the temples, he was not doing that out of a sense of belligerence and revenge. He repeatedly displayed composure, and that's because he was repeatedly confident, continually confident that everything was going according to God's plan for his mission. What was his mission? We've seen this in John. Jesus was not a political leader. Jesus was not a military leader. Jesus was not on a mission to fix this fallen and broken world, and it is broken. He was on a mission that focused on something far more important, the proclamation of gospel truth. And that is the mission that cannot be thwarted. So as Jesus went about fulfilling this priority, proclaiming truth, he did it with no animosity. He did it with no belligerence. He did it with no fear. He did it with no no stirring up of anarchy. He did it with no inciting or participating in any kind of insurrection. What a contrast that is to the approach of many zealots today. All the ugliness that we see the name-calling today, and even violence, both on the political right and the political left. Listen, we should be known for the same confident composure regardless of what we face, and we will be known as composed people, as steady people, as compassionate and gracious people when we stay committed, first of all, to the right mission, the gospel mission, like Jesus and when we choose to rest in God's sovereign care like Jesus. How do we do that? Well, for us, we do it by resting in the love and the care that He expresses to us in the promises that we find in Scripture. That is what helps us overcome belligerence, It's what helps us overcome anxiety in our hearts, fear in our hearts. I'm going to share one more verse of Scripture for you because I just discovered it a couple of weeks ago. You know how when you're reading, even your normal reading, you know, the Psalms and stuff like that, all of a sudden, there's this verse. Who put that in there all of a sudden? Somebody's been editing my Bible. That happened to me reading recently through Psalm 94. Psalm 94. Verse 19, listen, I'm sharing with you now my my most intimate part of my life here, okay, the Lord dealing with me. This was huge. Psalm 94, verse 19, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. I mean, that was amazing. I mean, it's like the Hallelujah Chorus was being sung in my den. You ever had anxious thoughts multiply within you? You ever had fearful thoughts? You ever had angst in your soul over something? The psalmist says it's God's consolations that ended up delighting his soul. And you see, once our souls are delighted in the Lord and delighted in His consolations, then we are free. Then we are empowered even to respond with gracious composure in every circumstance. So Jesus is the example of both courage and composure. We sang that earlier, Jesus, strong and kind, both sides. In short, Jesus is the ultimate example of faithfulness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this brief passage and a passage that, on one hand, is somewhat technical and just a, a narrative account of something that happened almost 2,000 years ago, a trial and just a few details about it, and, and yet we stand back and are amazed at the example that the Lord Jesus has left for us. So thank you for all that he endured at your hand, staying faithful all the way to the cross. Thank you for the cross because we fail so many times. We are belligerent at times and anxious and fearful and unkind and ungracious. We, we lose sight of why we're really here in the mission that we're on. So, Lord, thank you that all those moments of failure were also placed upon Jesus. All of our sin, past, present, and future, placed upon him, the sins of your people, all of them, so that we can know forgiveness and know purpose for living and have true identity and have the reward of eternity in heaven. So, Lord, we we ask you, though, for the strength to live this out. We ask you that you would help us to deal with sin in our hearts always, to keep short accounts of that so that we can have a clear conscience, not knowing that we're perfect, but knowing that we're keeping short accounts and that we're seeking to live righteously so that we can be courageous and bold in this world. Lord, give us a sense of compassion and grace. Help us not to react and respond like worldly people do. To the glory of our Savior, his name we pray. Amen.